This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Just when you thought Boris Johnson would dominate this week's headlines, Rishi Sunak steams in with a press conference on his clown car of a government and its Rwanda plan. I will not allow a foreign court to block these flights. But will it be enough to silence his right-wing critics like Suella Braverman and the just-departed former minister Robert Jenrick? And after two days of gruelling questioning in front of the COVID inquiry, what have we learned from Boris Johnson? We should have, have twigged. We should collectively have twigged much sooner. I should have twigged. Oh, OK. You're forgiven. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnists Gabby Hinsliff and Raphael Baer. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, John. Right, in the course of today, each of you, by dint of what you do for a living, has been following the political news. Raph, I know you watched Rishi Sunak's sudden press conference. Gabby, for two days you've been forensically following Boris Johnson's testimony at the COVID inquiry. How are you both feeling in the intersection of emotion and politics after those experiences? Ready for a drink. Is that an emotion? <laughs> That'll do. Yeah, well, Rishi spoke quite early in the morning, so I was pretty would have been a bit cheeky to have a drink then. Although I must say, to his credit, and it's the only positive thing I'm going to say about the Prime Minister, I think, uh, he was punctual. Because I remember when Theresa May and Boris Johnson used to do those emergency press conferences, they'd keep you waiting for about half an hour, 40 minutes. Rishi Sunak says it's going to be 11, 11 o'clock, he's at the podium. So, you know, half a, half a clap for that. Apart from that, it was appalling. <laughs> he's doomed, but he's on time. That may be his epitaph. Very tidy as well, apparently, yeah. It's not going to help him. Um, let's talk about the mess Rishi Sunak has landed in. At the start of this week, we did think that Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry would be the big story in our innocence. But then after a package of announcements about immigration from the new Home Secretary, the Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick resigned. Suella Braverman returned to the headlines and all hell broke loose yet again. When he quit on Wednesday night, Jenrick called the government's Rwanda bill a, quote, triumph of hope over experience, unquote. And then Rishi Sunak suddenly gave a press conference the following morning, which on Twitter they thought might be the announcement of an election. Obviously it wasn't. And Rishi Sunak said this. Let me just go through the ways that individual illegal migrants try and stay. Claiming asylum, that's now blocked. Abuse of our modern slavery rules, blocked. The idea that Rwanda isn't safe, blocked. The risk of being sent to some other country, blocked. And spurious human rights claims, you'd better believe that we've blocked those two because we're completely disapplying all the relevant sections of the Human Rights Act. At that press conference, Rishi Sunak was asked about the resignation of Robert Jenrick and he sounded rather tetchy in response. It's pretty clear that what we're doing is not only the right approach, it's the only approach, right? I'm determined to actually fix this problem and the people who want to do something else clearly don't because I'm confident this will work. There's no point having a piece of legislation with no one to send anyone to at the end of it, right? So I, I'm, that's what we're getting on with. 
This is where he does an angry inhalation of breath. To me, this seems to be yet another chapter in this kind of endless Tory psychodrama where you get MPs from the Conservative hard right refusing to compromise, making impossible demands. These are the people who I think David Cameron said will never take yes for an answer and endlessly trying to bring down Conservative prime ministers. Back in the 1990s, we saw that happen over the EU, the Maastricht Treaty, for people old enough to remember those things. Then it, it really went through a huge burst with Brexit, and it now seems to be happening with immigration policy. Um, what do you think of that reading to start with, Gabby? I mean, it, does it feel like, broadly speaking, the same kind of people making the same kind of moves, but in a different area this time, policy-wise? It's a slightly different generation of people every time, but but the overall... Um mood shall we say uh it's the same and i think rishi sunak's made a mistake that would be familiar to a number of previous tory leaders which is to think that there's something that you can give them that will make them happy you know they ask for the moon on a stick so you give them the moon on a stick and at that point they decide that what they really wanted was two moons on a stick and that you know has been the pattern since since time immemorial you can't kind of placate that faction of the Conservative Party. It lives to be disappointed. And now it has been disappointed. Suella Brabham has been sacked. She's uh, exerted her exacted her revenge. And, you know, here we are. Um, let's just hear a bit from Suella Braverman's belated resignation speech on Wednesday afternoon in the House of Commons. It is now or never. The Conservative Party faces electoral oblivion in a matter of months if we introduce... The Conservative Party faces electoral oblivion in a matter of months if we introduce yet another bill destined to fail. Do we fight for sovereignty or do we let our party die? Raf, whenever this psychodrama rears its head, I always ask myself, what do these people want? Do you know the answer to that question? Well, at this moment, I mean, the crucial factor here, as Sir Bradman just said, uh, is that they all think they're going to lose the next election. So this is now a battle to define what the Tories are in opposition, relieved from the burden of even having to try to do responsible government. Uh, And this is why this particular iteration of the mistake that Tory leaders make, and that Gabby described very well, feels particularly potent because ultimately, you know, when the Supreme Court issued that ruling saying the Rwanda scheme was unlawful, there was a very clear choice that Uh, the Prime Minister faced, which was either to completely U-turn and accept that the policy was dead, or go kind of full hard right tonto and say, right, we'll forget our international treaty obligations, forget human rights law, we just don't care, we're going to embrace a kind of maverick, rule-breaking, ultra-Brexity version of of what we feel we ought to do here so we can deport people to Rwanda and do whatever we want. Okay, but but he's found um, a a, a surreal third way. Exactly. No, And this is my point, that uh, there is really no third way between those two options. Uh, and the, he immediately came out and, and said that he would find one. And it was very obvious to everyone who understood the law, understood what the Supreme Court had actually said uh, and what his situation was, that that did not exist, partly for the reasons that Gabby says, which is that the, the hard right of the Conservative Party, they don't want to compromise. They want the grievance. They want to feel betrayed. And crucially, they want to blame the defeat on Rishi Sunak 
and yeah. what they would see as the sort of liberal, centrist, moderate wing of the Conservative Party. Not that Rishi Sunak is that. He's actually a very, very right-wing prime minister. But in sort of vibes terms, they want to land this on him and the rest of the Conservative Party. And this is what Robert Jenrick's done. Robert Jenrick has very clearly understood that the ship is going down and he would rather be a lead rat on whatever the opposition project is than go down with it. Um, as it is now. And and soon like he massively snookered himself when he made that choice and he's basically bad at politics and now he's in an absolute mess. You always know when you're at the arse end of a government, which is that people who hitherto thought of almost an, as anonymous non-entities suddenly crash land in the headlines and make the news. And that's what's happened with Robert Jenrick. Gabby, um, I'm sure you know the answer to this question. Who is he? And the other, uh, that's part of the question. And why should we care? Why should we care? And also, his politics have changed. He wasn't hard right or considered hard right, what, six months ago? Three weeks ago? In a sane world, I'm tempted to say no one would have to care about Robert Jenrick. But I mean, he he's one of those people who always um, accidentally manages to be wherever the winning side is. You know, he would have been a Cameroon in the Cameroon days. Yeah. He's a long-standing friend of Rishi Sunak. I mean, is, I think yeah. the, the sort of the worst bit, almost the most painful bit, I think, of that resignation letter was the bit where he said towards the end, you know, you and I are old friends. And he was put into the home office Everybody thought at the time um, as the sort of number 10 spy in the cab, you know, someone who would be kind of the Sunak loyalist in a department where um, Suella Brabham was going off reservation. There have been signs over the last couple of weeks that that wasn't the case. He said very openly that he would have cracked down on immigration harder if he'd been allowed to, essentially blaming the prime minister for the fact that he hadn't. At that point, I think, you know, the writing was on the wall. And now he has chosen this particular moment to resign. With a view to his career prospects after what looks like their inevitable election defeat. So in other words, this is largely his political change, it seems, is all about self-interest, really. I think he's concluding that there's more to be gained from being outside the Home Office than in it at the moment. And also, crucially, he wasn't made Home Secretary in the recent reshuffle. And that must be ah. very frustrating for him, because if he knew he was going to lose anyway, to have been one of the big cabinet roles would put him in a very different position in yeah. a, in an opposition party. And he go he will go into opposition, or he was looking at going into opposition, having just been a Minister of State at the Home Office. So his just raw political calculation means, in terms of where he piles his political chips, actually he's made a decision based on that and one other thing that's worth remembering about Robert Jenrick he should never have bounced back from the disgrace <laughs> of fast tracking a, a planning application that is complicated but broadly speaking yeah. I mean, this is a slippery yeah, character and the kind of slippery character who a good political dramatist writes into a play about the arse end of a government let's be honest now let's just just briefly explain Rishi Sunak's third way as Raf has characterised it the bill avoids the radical option of setting aside European human rights laws altogether which would have been a step too far for the Rwandan government that's a crucial point the price of the Rwandan government's in involvement is exactly the European aspect, which um, Braverman and Jenrick don't like. Now, the legislation doesn't stop people lodging appeals against their deportation on the grounds that it breaches Britain's obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights. That's what the anti-Sunakites say they object to. Here's a question. Will this bill even get through? It's going to come into the House of Commons next week. I, it, it would be very unusual for it to fall at the second reading in the Commons when there is still the option for, well, if you start with the, the sort of one nation moderate, for want of a better word, wing of the Conservative Party that will object to what they see as currently drafted as a, essentially an attack on the rule of law by an overmighty <laughs> executive, among other things, which it is, by the way, and I'm happy to explain why, yeah. they will probably 
want to bolster Rishi Sunak's position for fear of the whole thing completely unravelling um, in the expectation that the Lords will do violence to the bits of the bill they hate. And the noises, as I understand at the moment, is that actually the hardliners, do they necessarily have the numbers? So it might well get through the Commons, but it will definitely get bogged down in the Lords. Gabby, where does all this leave the theory that Rishi Sunak was sort of rearing up for a, a, a contrived, confected fight about this bill as part of the preparation for the next election? I mean, he's certainly got a fight, probably not the one that you would you would want to use as a launch pad for a general election no. campaign. And I think I think that's the trouble. You know, we the Conservatives are still behaving as if immigration is an issue that they can weaponize against Labour, you know, an issue that that wrongfoots the opposition and, you know, throws them into a quandary, um, but which well, on which, you know, the, the government can be reliably on the same side as the voters. I don't think it is that anymore. I think it's now an issue that confounds and splits the Conservative Party and an issue on which voters don't believe it anymore. I mean, if you look at the polling, most people do not think whether or not they think the Rwanda plan is a good idea. Most people don't think it's going to happen. They've been hearing for three years about how, you know, something's going to be done and it never is. And they just think it's all rubbish. It's all nonsense. And the fact that Suella Braverman has stood up and said effectively, it is indeed all rubbish and nonsense. Um, and it is a sham. And you're quite right. The whole thing is just wildly unconvincing. Rishi Sunak has backed himself into a corner. People were saying today, you know, it's reminiscent of the way Theresa May was backed into a corner over Brexit. Yeah. It is, except that that wasn't, you know, Theresa May had no choice. Brexit happened. She had to do it. Rishi Sunak did not have to pick this fight over immigration that he's chosen to have and lost. Yes, this is quite sort of curb your enthusiasm politics, isn't it? Where you come up with a clever scheme to get one over your adversaries and then you you come out a bit much the worst. Yeah, there, there are two elements to this, I think, in term, in, the, in electoral terms... It is true that there is a segment that is very, very agitated by this particular question. And that is a segment of, crudely speaking, working class voters who in 2019 uh, were big Brexiters, might previously have supported Labour, switched to the Tories, are now undecided, but not that interested in Labour, but available to reform UK or might just stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the thing is, if you remember all the way back in 1997, which is the, I mean, there's so many reasons why this isn't that, but just in terms of what happens in electoral terms, only 3% of people voted for the referendum party. Do you remember that? Um, But an awful lot of Tories stayed home. And in combination, that massively increased the damage that was done to the Tory party. And the danger of something analogous happening now is quite significant for the Tories. It could make the difference between just losing and getting absolutely annihilated. So you can understand why the Tories think, uh, you know, I, they, I can say it's all about Labour, but the most important thing is we need these particular voters to stay with us um, in, in, in the next election to avoid losing dozens and dozens of seats. Earlier in the week, we're still on immigration here, but in a very different way. The government tried to take control of the narrative with the new Home Secretary, James Cleverly, announcing that, among other things, overseas care workers will not be allowed to bring their family dependents to the UK. He announced the skilled worker visa minimum salary rising nearly 50% from £26,200 to £38,700, although it is said health and care workers will get some special dispensation. And perhaps most, most toxically of all, he announced that the minimum um, salary threshold for a family visa whereby a partner or spouse can bring their other half into the country is going to be raised from round about £18,000 to £38,700. So if you fall in love with someone overseas and you don't earn that amount of money, tough. You ain't going to get to live with them. That's an unbelievable thing for a government to announce, isn't it, Gabby? 
Yes, and I don't think they've thought through quite where the opposition to this is going to come from. You know, it isn't just the people that they would expect to be opposed to this. I think there are going to be an awful lot of Tory voters who suddenly realise that this means that when their daughter moved to New Zealand to live with her lovely New Zealand husband and their lovely New Zealand abiding children, that means that she won't now be able to come home unless she earns that kind of salary. It means that British people who have fallen in love with a citizen from another country won't be able to settle here unless they're earning what is, you know, it's only the top 25% of British earners who fall into this salary bracket. And I think once you start hearing stories of families split up by this, you know, grandparents who can't see their grandchildren, people who can't live in the same country as their spouse, you know, families divided across different continents, I don't think it's going to seem like such a smart idea anymore. I actually did a, a quite a big in-depth article about five or six years ago about how cruel the consequences were of the old £18,000-ish threshold. You know, I met people um, whose children had never really met their fathers and all of that stuff. There were there were really, really awful human stories then, let alone what happens when it, when it's raised to, to this extent. The other thing is this is one of those Tory policies, Raf, which really seems all the more toxic given that it's coming from a party that bangs on about about the, the, the loveliness of the small state and the desirability of personal freedom. And you've got a government legislating here to tell people who they can and can't be in relationships with. That there's a dissonance there that conservatives, some conservatives, must feel. Yeah, and family values. I mean, this family is values, this is yeah. this is the Conservative Party essentially legislating a line down the mattress in people's bedrooms on the basis that you know one half of the 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 couple uh, is foreign uh, and not not a UK citizen. And uh, I think Abby's right. They, I, it, it seems to me symptomatic of. Uh, things not having been thought through. So what uh, will happen as a result of that? Do you expect this part of these generally awful proposals, this specific part then, to fade away, to die, to be kicked in? I think this, they will change this for exactly the reason that Gabby says. I think they haven't understood who they're actually talking about uh, and what they will find. And this, you know, going, thinking about it again in electoral terms, the other side of that the calculation, the equation that you know we were talking about a moment ago in terms of who are the voters who are flirting with reform, who really want action on small votes. There's another group of voters who also voted Conservative in 2019, but might have been Remainers or didn't really care that much either way about Brexit. They really, really didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. That was a particular reason they voted for Boris Johnson. They don't like Boris Johnson. And they really hate the kind of aggressive, angry UKIPization of the Conservative Party. And for want of a better word, these are the kind of blue wall voters. And yeah, I've in, met a lot they of are going to vote Lib Dem in lots of places, or again, they might stay at home. And they get how nasty this is. And even if they think maybe immigration is a bit high, this stuff does not play well, I think. And and you will get Conservative MPs in places, you know, sort of Michael Gove's constituency, those sorts of places, who are going to be getting feedback from this saying, actually, this is really poisonous what we're doing here. I agree with Raph, but I don't think it's just them. I think there's it, this measure falls into the same trap that government fell into in the same package by, you know, wanting to restrict care workers' visas and NHS workers' visas. You know, it's thinking that that anything that brings down immigration is good. But the Tory voters, often the rebel voters, whichever kind of voters you want to say, who are 
worried about immigration and there is, you know, there are small numbers, still a lot more that are worried about cost of living. But the ones that are really worried about it have a particular idea in their head of the particular kind of immigrant they don't want here. And it's not a care worker looking after their granny. And it's not, you know, somebody's Spanish wife that they married before Brexit. You know, those are not the kind of immigrants they're obsessed with. It's, it's very often someone who doesn't exist. It's this phantasm con- yep. conjured up by GB News and the Daily Mail and all that about, about migrants who come here and claim benefits and who live by the tens of thousands in council houses and all of those people who actually on close inspection aren't there. It's also not going to do anything between now and an election. So even if it did happen to reduce the net migration numbers, you know, it, it falls into the category of things the Conservative Party can say it is doing with a view to the changes that will happen in the future. And as Gabby said earlier, no one believes them anymore. So they're getting the maximum hit from doing something unpleasant with no discernible actual material proof to show that it's worked. Now, Raf, you said a moment ago that this some of this um, agenda is motivated by Tory fear of Nigel Farage. Is he still in the jungle? I've, I don't watch it anymore. I've boycotted it. He is still there. He's I think. still in the jungle. Yeah, he's still Sunday. there. Well, he might get out earlier, but if he goes, if he goes to the to the wire, then Sunday. <laughs> yeah, they're worried about him and his renewed profile because of Amos Celebrity and the Reform Party and the damage the Reform Party might do at the election. But as we've said a couple of times already. This is also about what the Tories want to hit Labour with over and over again. You know, that ancient kind of attack line about North London liberals who want to open the UK's borders and all that. Now, Gabby said a moment ago that the sheer fact that it's rebounded already, this spectacularly shows that won't work. But I wonder, I watched shadow cabinet ministers this week being asked about their views on this, and they seemed as nervous and terrified as they always did. Steve Reid said that he broadly agreed with the moves on visa restrictions, certainly as far as the skilled skilled worker visa minimum salary is concerned. And I heard Yvette Cooper on the Today programme being asked about this, and all she could say really was some of this stuff needed referring to the Migration Advisory Committee. They didn't have a clear position on it. I mean, this still terrifies the Labour Party, this stuff, doesn't it? And your heart always slightly sinks when you hear a Labour shadow cabinet minister responding to this stuff because you know that you're likely to get a fair degree of equivocation. I just don't feel this is as damaging to them as it has been in the past, precisely because it's now equally damaging to the Conservative Party. And I think the focus, they're no longer in a position where voters are looking for reasons to justify not deserting the government or looking for reasons to sort of stay on board or looking for reasons to to worry about the Labour Party. It's flipped now. People are looking for actively looking for you know for reasons to support the Labour Party. That's the change, you know, and they're actively thinking, well, I don't like, I don't like that. I don't like what I heard there, but God, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not going to vote for this shower of a government. So that's that's the flip that you know wasn't true a year ago. Do you think there'll ever come a point, even after the election, when a Labour politician might say? come on, we've got to be honest with ourselves here. And toxic politics policies like these sit very awkwardly in a world in which the person who tells the pollster that they're very wound up about immigration goes to hospital and gets fixed by someone born overseas. And when they go into a care home or one of their relatives does, they get looked after by someone born overseas. And there is an awful hypocrisy in the collective British attitude to this that at some stage might have to be called out, particularly by a centre-left party of government. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say two things. One thing, this side of an election, what is available to the Labour Party is to turn it into a conversation about competence and say, well, whatever you think, clearly this government is messing it up. And Yvette Cooper, I think, holds that line. Yeah, fairly she's quite well, good at actually. that. She's yeah. quite good at that. Um, in terms of subsequently, I think it's it's certainly available as a position and you'd want you'd need a very good communicator to pull it off. I do think the quid pro quo from that is the liberal left has to not 
flip out every time a centrist, moderate, centre-left Labour person tries to calibrate the position in recognising you need some kind of border control and hear any single allusion to the requirement of any kind of uh, sort of controls or limitations as just pandering to Tory policy, uh, essentially sort of trotting after the hard right and indulging racism. So it's, and, and you've seen this because actually Keir Starmer himself has articulated tentatively some of the things you just said in terms of actually what works with small boats is dealing with France, getting deals done. Basically, the problem is the gangs that are running this uh, cross-channel traffic. They're awful people. And he got a very hard time from the left and from the Labour left and more widely progressive opinion as if he was just being a a kind of a Suella Braverman sort of light figure. And so if there's no slack, no quarter given to a centre-left argument on this because it's always presented as basically red Toryism, it is very difficult to land that argument you just articulated. This is the, the trickiness of politics in the age of Twitter or X, as we must now call it. Right, let's pause there for a minute. When we come back after the break, we're going to be talking about good old Boris Johnson and his appearance in front of the COVID inquiry. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de/nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Akas-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Welcome back. On Wednesday and Thursday this week, Boris Johnson, remember him, gave evidence to the COVID inquiry. On a purely human level, I think we should start by saying why the former Prime Minister testifying is so important and why this moment really, really matters to so many people. And that clearly is bound up with the fact that the death toll from COVID currently stands at 230,193. Um, anyone who writes about politics, I dare say, will have paid a great deal of attention to this. You must have both watched it. What did you think? I've watched two days of it now. And I have to say, I mean, there was a sort of small part of me that hoped it would be in some way cathartic. You know, not necessarily that you'd learn something new or surprising because you kind of know everything you need to know really by now about Boris Johnson's performance during the pandemic, but that that there would be some kind of sense of closure in, in watching him kind of held accountable for it. And really there yeah. wasn't. It just, the whole thing is just empty somehow. It's the fact that he's so curiously unreflective. He doesn't seem to have really given much thought to to what he learned or what he drew from that experience or what it meant to have run the country through, you know, the worst thing that's happened to us since Second World War. Everyone else has kind of at least tried to sort of reflect a bit and he just doesn't. I watched the TV news last night on the BBC and it juxtaposed his appearance with interviews with people whose lives have been severely changed by COVID, people who, who have had and are still living with the effects of long COVID, people who've been bereaved. And as Gabby said, there was sort of an expectation within the way that coverage was put together of some sort of reckoning or catharsis or resolution. You know, that was the way this was all trailed. And it just didn't materialise. I I wonder, you know, maybe this is just, you know, the sort of fourth or fifth aftershock of of Johnson's premiership. And the one act of reckoning we've had so far in its own imperfect way was his his resignation. And that's it. Yeah, I think the... Most revealing moment in two days of testimony was in the first 10 minutes. And that was when he he, he started out saying, I'm going to, with, with 
a, an apology of sorts. He articulated what you know was in the form of an apology, and he was then asked by uh, Hugo Keith, the the Casey uh, acting for the inquiry just to specify what exactly it was he was apologizing for. And he couldn't. Yeah. He, it was, he, that was the answer he found the hardest. He literally couldn't articulate what it was he was actually sorry for. And then after that, it all yeah, there, there were his self-justifications and you know, it, this sort of pseudo-candor where he sort of tries to expect, you know, show a bit of contrition for the fact that things didn't go as perfectly as they might have done. I mean, but other than that, we didn't learn very much. And I think you're right. There was this sense really that actually... The interesting bit now that we everyone settled got a settled view on Boris Johnson's character uh, and what he's like and why he was bad at being prime minister. And then the interesting thing is the nature of the decisions they were having to take. It turns out to be genuinely hard. Actually, the balance between when you lock down, when you lift the restrictions, the economic harm, stopping kids going to school. Those were genuinely interesting questions for which we don't have answers. And asking him for his opinion or to explain why he thinks the government was rubbish at making those decisions doesn't get you any closer to that. So actually, I found myself thinking, I don't care what he thinks about this stuff. I, I want answers to those questions. You almost felt as if he'd been... Hey, this- hold on, ba- hold on, Gabby, because we should. the listeners deserve to hear his apology or half apology or quarter apology. Let's hear him attempting to sound contrite. Could I say, by your leave, uh, that I understand the feelings of, the, of these victims and their families, and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering of those victims and, and their families. Right, sorry, Gabby, before Boris Johnson so rudely interrupted you with his apology, you were going to say... Wouldn't be the first to have been rudely interrupted no. by Boris Johnson. There's something about the, the impression that you got was that somehow, I mean, the role of a prime minister in a in a crisis like that they're not going to get everything right obviously you know and I was kind of ready to hear an explanation that said look these were incredibly difficult decisions and you know there were no good answers to a lot of them somebody was going there were going to be terrible things that happened whichever way we jumped and you you know some kind of I think that's fair you know I would have accepted that but instead what you got was it sounded as if you know the decisions were all being taken by some other adult in the room and Boris Johnson was just sort of like this kind of giant man-child kind of tugging on the grown-up sleeves when they were busy saying, can someone explain to me why this stupid idea is a stupid idea? You know, and instead of providing what you'd expect the Prime Minister to provide, which is a proper challenge and pushback and interrogating the evidence in front of you and saying, well, hang on, you said this, but what I've heard from nerve tag says this. And, you know, are you sure that's right when when this was the evidence given to Sage next week? There's none of that. There is literally just floundering around and then saying, but, you know, what I've seen on the front of the spectator this week or, you know, someone I bumped into in the street said X, Y, Z, you know, ridiculous i think that's absolutely right and a crucial point that actually the thing in which he incriminated himself most in that testimony was the tacit admission that he wasn't leading at all every self-exculpation he gave consisted of saying this was everyone's failure collectively this was going wrong it was very you know the fact it was hard other countries were finding this hard as well and it was it through it was all suffused with this sense that he was not actually leading the country at that time. Um, his choice of words from time to time was quite astounding. Let's just hear a bit about uh, Boris Johnson admitting that perhaps they should have realised the urgency of the looming pandemic before they did. I mean, you know, just so you know, I, I, I look at all this stuff in which we seem so oblivious with with, with horror now. I mean, we we, we should have we should have have twigged. We should collectively have twigged. Uh, much sooner. I should have tweaked. That's real sort of uh, 
Blackadder officer class stuff. You know, that reminded me of, you know, you'd imagine Gen, the famous General Melchit, played by Stephen Fry, talking about the Battle of the Somme. You know, it twigged, it would be quite as awful as that, chaps. It was dreadful, dreadful stuff. It's also, also massively dishonest because the evidence that was shown to him in the inquiry around that time showed that, you know, there were things in his red boxes saying in January and February that, you know, it's now reasonable to expect this is going to be in our more bad case scenario and lots and lots of people might well die from this. But he was just lying, basically. He didn't even twig when he saw what we all saw, which was those very vivid images of what was going on in Italy. Now, I don't know about you, but I knew. Once I saw, I think it was a great line of ambulances queuing outside an Italian hospital, and I thought, my God, this thing is coming for us, right? And if you take him at his word... The Prime Minister of the UK thought, oh, that doesn't seem to be anything to worry about very much. Good heavens. There was a very telltale moment in one answer when he said, um, he said, was talking about what he knew at a particular time, and he said, insofar as I was paying attention. And I thought, yeah, that'll be why. That'll be why you don't seem to have got it. And it continued throughout. I mean, there's an understandable, in some ways, position that, you know, and I think this happened to a lot of people, to be fair, happened to Sage as well. It happened to a lot of people at the beginning where it took a while to sink in that what you were seeing was really what you were seeing. You know, it was so enormous that it took a while to take in. Fair enough. But then, you know, when he was asked about Eat Out to Help Out, for example, did you not, you know, did it not occur to you that maybe sending people into restaurants in the middle of a pandemic would possibly be a bad idea? You know, he said, well, it wasn't presented to me that way by the Treasury. Like, as if, how could I possibly be expected to know at this stage in the summer after however many thousand people have died and we've been through one lockdown? How could I, a mere prime minister, have guessed <laughs> that this might be possibly something to question? You know, and it was just like, oh, well, fair enough then, mate. You know, you didn't know. And an equally very revealing moment <laughs> in recovering that January-February period when, when he's thinking, well, yeah, how was I supposed to know? He also cites as an example the fact that it wasn't politically salient. He said, no one had asked me about this at PMQs yet. I said, oh, that's yeah, the thing yeah. you need. To know. That, that's, you're getting all the data. You're, you, if you turned up at COBRA meetings, you would know some of this stuff. But because no one's asked in PMQs, he doesn't feel politically threatened by it. He said that explicitly. It wasn't a politi- It wasn't on his political consciousness, He basically, I think was the phrase he used. Uh, and again, such a dereliction of leadership. You know, it's unbelievable. Actually, it's entirely believable. You made reference to this a bit already, but what struck me watching it this afternoon was how vividly it demonstrated that he has just no notion of detail, right? Absolutely none. It sounds like a panicked person in a university interview. And you almost have to sort of check yourself to realise who they're questioning and what they're asking him about. Of course, moving on to Partygate, he was uh, defiant about Partygate and the idea that it was all a load of fuss about nothing. I suppose we should hear a bit of that by way of torturing ourselves. What what, uh, can I do but, again, apologise for mistakes that uh, we made in Number 10? What I'm trying to to tell you and to tell the inquiry is that I think that the, the characterization, the representation that has been of what civil servants and advisors were doing in Number 10 has been a travesty of the truth. They, they thought they were working uh, very, very hard, which they were, and I certainly thought that what we were doing was, as I've said before, uh, within the rules. Here's a question. I wonder where this all leaves us, Gabby. If you were one of the many, many thousands of people who lost loved ones during the pandemic... I mean, just if you're a member of the British public, all of us had, um, to a lesser or greater extent, trying and traumatic experiences during this period. What what do you make of the last two days? I think, I mean, there were several points where where the judge had to ask um, people in the public gallery to be quiet. Obviously, the relatives were finding it very difficult. Some people 
walked out, you know, you could you could see that feelings are running pretty high in the room. And I think, you know, that will be as true for people who were listening at home. But it's it's really struck me that, that the general mood beyond, you know, some people are obviously very angry, very upset. It's brought up a lot of painful memories. But the overall kind of mood is a lot of apathy. People feeling, well, you know, what's it going to change? You know, it's not going to bring anyone back. And, and there's no, you know, John, Johnson can't be sacked any more than he already has been it feels as if there's you know there's nowhere much for that that um feeling to go except of course against the current government and in spite of everything rafa i mean the point is he'll be fine that was another part of the way that i saw it and i'm sure the way everybody watched it was that you know in george's questioning but there's no consequences he'll be fine in the sense that you know he'll have a career and there'll be books and lecture circuit stuff it has struck me that he hasn't been as resilient politically as he might have been. I mean, given the analogy is always drawn with Donald Trump, who has just survived everything and is a serious proposition for or an unserious but terrifyingly potentially effective proposition for the White House next year. Uh, and there are a lot of people who would would say never write off Boris Johnson. But I think in for most people in public opinion, he's gone to a place you actually don't come back from. Uh, and, you know, Parche Nadine Dorries, who still thinks he's wonderful and, you know, it, it, it should be in charge of everything again. That is, I think, a very, very niche position now in a way that wasn't necessarily predictable, even when Partygate was breaking and it looked like he was toxic. You know, his capacity to bounce back is significant enough that you don't want to write him off. But he looked pretty written off, actually, I thought, in the last um, 48 hours. And it's Rishi Sunak's turn next week. Yeah, and I think we've probably heard enough over the last couple of days. I mean, the inquiry tends to keep its powder dry, but from what we've heard, there's definitely questions to be asked about his opposition to the first lockdown, about where he was uh, in the autumn lockdown. You know, it sounded from a couple of things that came out during this hearing as if he was quite, um, as if Hugo Keith was arguing he'd been quite influential on Boris Johnson's um, resistance to lockdown. And of course, there's eat out to help out or eat out to help the virus as it became known. And the fact that um, the chief scientific advisor has said that he wasn't consulted before the Treasury took this measure. So uh, presumably because um, they were well aware of what, well, scientists were likely to say about that. This That's the big one, isn't it? In terms of having some sense of drama and things being at stake, Raf, Sunak's appearance will be much fuller of a sense of things like that, won't it? Yeah, he's a serving prime minister and he's appearing in what, in terms of the, the optics of it, for want of a better term, is the, is the doc. You know, he's being questioned by a KC uh, about decisions he made that might or might not have resulted in the tens of thousands of people getting very ill and dying. So... That is necessarily, I think, politically more significant than uh, relitigating the awfulness of Boris Johnson's political judgment and character. Um, it's been, for some reason, I don't know about you, it's felt like a very, very long week this week. And I suppose <laughs> that's because of this awful sort of Groundhog Day sense that I have about politics. For as long as we have to wait until the election, it seems to me, this week was a reminder that we're just stuck, aren't we? The cold and dark aren't helping, I suppose, but... Sunak is there landing himself in it yet again. Suella Bravman's on manoeuvres yet again. There's toxic stuff swirling around about immigration yet again. And Boris Johnson is in the news talking about COVID and Partygate yet again. I just have this sense of, well, how many more times do I have to watch this film? It feels like we're all just marking time now as well. I mean, I never say that the outcome of an election is, you know, set in stone, but I think we're getting more and more sure this government doesn't look long for this world and you kind of why why 
keep it, you know, hanging on. It's time to put it out of its misery. It needs to go and live on a nice farm in Kent at this point. Or a, a condo in Los Angeles, more to the point, Raph. I mean, Sunak must have had enough within himself, mustn't he? Imagine turning up to work every day to be faced with this. I don't want to sound unnecessarily generous towards him. I don't really feel like that, but you know what I'm saying. His tone in the press conference that we talked about at the beginning, uh, and which revealed something that we've seen in him before, and I know some Conservative MPs are a bit worried about, that slight sense of resentment that British politics collectively is being ungrateful for the hard work that he's put in on its behalf. Uh, he really, it comes across a bit too strongly, and he's a, he's a bit quick to give the impression of someone who has been fast-tracked through, you know, ever since being head boy at Winchester, it's been a fast stream ascent through all sorts of very exciting, privileged jobs that are you know, varying degrees of lucrative or interesting. And this is the first one he's really failed at and conspicuously failed at, and he's not enjoying it, and he doesn't like that feeling, and he doesn't really know what to do about it. And rule of politics, never sound peevish. On that note... <laughs> We will bring things to a close. Thank you for joining us, Raf and Gabby. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week in the UK wherever you get your podcast. This cheery episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Hast du genug von Werbung, die deine Comedy-Podcast-Party zum Absturz bringt? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash comedypodcasts, um keine neuen Folgen mehr zu verpassen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.